listening to another sermon podcast presented by Chelsea Presbyterian Church. Located in Chelsea, Alabama, we value community, fellowship, and love for people from all walks of life. For more information, find us online at www.chelseaprez.org or check us out on Facebook. All right, uh, here we are uh, in our study in uh, the first and second Samuel. And uh, it's amazing how much we've been through so far in this book. And we've seen a lot of drama and pain and tragedy throughout this study. But now things seem to be settling down just a little bit. Look at the, the actually the quote. Let's go ahead and start with a quote for the day in our uh, introduction here. We're going to talk about this. As you're looking for that quote, we're going to be in 2 Samuel uh, 6 and 7. Peter Lightheart says this, After David becomes king over all of Israel, one of his first acts is to conquer the city of Jerusalem. That's what we saw last week. Y'all remember he climbed through the watershed? They said that you will never get in. Jebusite said there's no way you'll ever take over the city. He climbed up through the watershed, took over Jerusalem, and created it as the capital city of Israel. Once he's taken the city, now... He decides to set up the throne of Israel there. And the Ark of the Covenant, remember the Ark of the Covenant? We haven't talked about that in a while. Ark of the Covenant throne of God there. This is an important moment for restoring the house of God that was ruined by the sins of Eli's sons. Hopefully that's a reminder of a lot of characters and a lot of things that have happened. Remember in the very beginning we had Eli and his sons and they corrupted the worship. And then they died. And then Eli, when he heard the news, fell backward and broke his neck. And then we had uh, Saul come along. And we saw all the turmoil with that. And these sons of Eli and King Saul always seemed to be thinking of themselves. The, law, the, the ark had been lost to the Philistines. Now King David comes along and he seems to be, seems to be thinking more about what God wants than himself thinking about restoring a lot of these things that have been lost in the nation so far. So this is what we're going to pick up this week. If you look at our order of worship today, uh, don't get up and leave just because you see so many verses in here. Uh, it's, it's, it flows as a story. We're not going to reread and reread all of these. We are going to read uh, the first uh, paragraph here uh, in this. And then we'll come back and talk about the other ones. So let's look at the first paragraph. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were there with him from Bele, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God. So it's going back to get the ark, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadad, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Eliah and the sons of Abinadad were driving the cart. And the ark of God went, and, and Eliah went before the ark. Actually, let's go ahead and read the next paragraph. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And they came to the threshing floor of Nacom. Uzzah put out his hand of the ark and took hold of it before, because the oxen had stumbled. 
And the anger of the Lord was kindled against him. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father God, uh, help us to understand this story today. Help us to understand your point in the story of why you would have us reading this so many years after it happened. But most of all, help us to learn about who you are and how to love you and your Son and your Holy Spirit to the degree that you would want us to. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, here we have an interesting story. We'll talk about that just for a moment. We've all heard of the Great Wall of China, and uh, about maybe you know more information about it than I do, but some things I was looking at this week is it's over 13,000 miles long, and it was built over a period of 2,000 years. It was made to keep invaders and warring tribes out, but it's not just a wall, it's like a series of fortifications, and it has all these towers alongside it for protection. It's built from bricks, uh, and stone and earth and even wood in certain places. It stretches all the way from the ocean to the desert. And it is a feat of engineering the more you look at it and how they built it. It's surrounded by, when you walk down through it, it's surrounded by palaces and gardens and trade routes. And some have said it can be seen from outer space. I don't even you heard that before. That's not true, by the way. I looked that up. Um, but the Great Wall of China is one of the great wonders of civilization today. But why did I bring that up? Can you imagine this? The vision of the people that thought this wall up. Can you imagine someone being the first person to lay a stone on a structure that wouldn't be finished for 2,000 years? But there's a more practical question. Have you ever wanted to do something great? I mean, have you ever wanted to build something great or in your mind do something great or create something great or leave a legacy behind that would be here for years? Well, today we're looking at King David, and this is a part of some of the desires that he had to do. And he's not only wanting to do it for himself and Israel, he's wanting to do it for God. What is his desire? What does he want to do, and how can, and can he accomplish it? We've already seen that he's got a first problem already that he's had by trying to bring the ark back. Can he accomplish the goals that he has in this passage today? What we're about to see. What we're going to talk about today is, uh, the title is King David, the Ark, and a Temple. So the first point we're going to talk about, and the points are in the bulletin. The first point we're going to talk about is the return of the ark. The return of the ark. He's already trying to get the ark back. The same thing, we're going to see a celebration in the middle of this, and then we're going to see David desiring to build a temple. So all these things are happening in one passage. So let's talk about it today. First of all, think about what just happened in this passage with the return of the ark. After David is accepted as king, he wants the ark of the covenant that has been lost 
to come to Jerusalem, the capital city that's now established, uh, called the city of David. Now, last we heard of the ark, if y'all remember this, the Philistines had taken it. And God cursed them with all these plagues. And to the point where they finally just sent it back to the Israelites and, and just in the middle of nowhere. Nobody, even Israel, didn't want to touch it at that point. They thought it was cursed. And so here David is. He wants to bring, he wants to get everybody together and bring uh, them together and bring the ark back from the place that it was out in Gibeon to the central city that he's now established in Jerusalem. All the people are shouting. They're so pumped about this. They're singing. They're playing instruments, it says, before God. It's a great day for God's people. But here's where it gets sideways. They're transporting the ark back to Jerusalem. They get a rough patch in the road. The ark starts to slide. This well-intended man named Uzzah, who's caring for the ark and trying to help pass it, reach out for it to steady it, and the Lord strikes him dead. Kills him right there by the ark. Kills him dead, and it also kills the celebration, as you can imagine. David is initially angry. He's angry at God. He's thinking, God, I was trying to do something good, something faithful. I was trying to seek God in this, something Paul that Saul had not done. And instead of approving and welcoming him, the Lord bursts out against David. And David is angry, and he stops the whole procession, and he leaves the ark where it is. Wow. I mean, that, that's quite an emotional roller coaster ride right there. Now, before we get angry, like David, at God, we need to remember a couple of things because we've seen this before. First of all, King Saul had tried using art whatever way he wanted to before. Remember when he was losing the battle? That's how he got lost in the first place. He went back and said, we're losing. Let's go back and get the ark. Thinking he can, he can bring the power of God back with him. But instead, he lost the battle to the Philistines. The enemies of God, the Philistines, took it. And this is how the ark got away from people in the first place, which is a reminder. And God keeps reminding them that you can't use the ark of the covenant that signifies his presence. You can't use it as a trinket. It's not a toy. It's not a piece of jewelry or amulet or some magic crystal or anything like that. It signifies the presence of God. But what's the problem here? I mean... David understands that it signifies the presence of God. So why did the guy have to die in this? Well, it's the part that's the problem. See, um, when you look at this, David, despite his good intentions, he got too anxious. If he were to just stop for a minute and say, if I'm really going to do this for God, I better think about the way that God would have me do it. If he were to study the words of God, he remembered that, number one, only the tribe of the priests, the Levites, could be in charge of carrying the ark, number one. He was just letting anybody and everybody just grab it and take off with it. The second thing is, they were not supposed to carry the ark on a cart. They were all supposed to have put it on the poles like it was designated in the first place, where nobody was worried about the ark falling off or touching the ark. That's how they were supposed to carry it. So where did they get the idea of this whole cart thing? from the Philistines. The Philistines were the one that put it on the cart. And so instead of going after the ways of God and how God had put things aside, and instead of doing their, uh, God's way, they began to do it their way, not only their way, but the Philistines' way that were the enemies of God. 
So it seems like David is handling the sacred thing of God that signifies his presence in a pagan manner, in an unbelieving manner here. David is wrong, but here's the difference between he and Saul. David repents, and he tries it again. This time, he makes all the proper preparations. He goes and he appoints the priestly tribe of the Levites to carry the ark, and he tells them to carry it on the shoulders with the poles, not on the cart, and he organizes the Levites to do the music and to play the instruments. The whole procession is now in the hands of the Levites that were designated from the beginning to care for and to carry the ark because they're the people that knew how to do it. It wasn't that God just didn't want people in general. He, he had designated his priestly tribe of, of the Levites that were instructed in the ways of God. That's why he wanted them to do that. In short, now David handles the ark in the way that it's supposed to be handled. And this time, guess what? He's successful. The ark is taken to Jerusalem and it's placed in a royal tent. See, sometimes it's possible in our lives for us to do something that seems good. It's not a bad thing. thing that, it's not a prohibitive thing, but something that seems good, something that we believe is in all sincerity the will of God and find that God frustrates our efforts. To say that something seems good to us is different and not identical to say it's from the Lord. And we've got to be careful with that. The way we tell the difference is by consulting the Word of God. People are looking out there. They want to know their, their purpose and their plan. And they want to know, why is God not giving me a sign of like, when's the last time you read your Bible? Those are the words of God. The things that David could have learned about here were not a vision that he was supposed to seek. It was just going back and looking at the Old Testament scriptures. It wasn't a myth or mystery there. See, taking matters in our own hands might be easier, but it doesn't mean it's right. And it doesn't get easier for David after this. Okay, he has an art. Now what? Let's look at the celebration of David. Look at verse 14 there where it says, And David danced. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. Get, right, he's, he's just brought the ark back. He's so happy. Here's the ark. Everything's working out. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel came up and brought the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of a horn. And as the ark of the Lord came to the city of David, back to Jerusalem, Michael, who's actually his wife, but also, look here, this daughter of Saul, looked out her window and she saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord and she despised him in her heart. And David returned to bless his household, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, which is also the wife of David, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel has honored himself today, uncovering himself to get today before the eyes of the servants, female servants, as one of the, the vulgar fellows shamefully uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and all of his house to appoint me as the prince of Israel and the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. Isn't it interesting in this paragraph that Michael is never referred to as David's wife, even though she is his wife? But called who? The daughter of Saul. Why? Because she is 
displaying a disposition, a, a way that's more similar to her dad, her father, King Saul, than her husband, King David. She suffers from pride here, while David is willing to look like a fool in front of the people because of his love for God and, and how happy he is with what God has done. In verse 16, the whole city rejoices, and she's looking out the window with disgust at David. She sees dancing and leaping without his royal robe on. So what happens? He, he's taking his royal robe off, and he's basically dressed in a linen uh, ebon, which is, a, he's dressed like a commoner, or almost like a servant at this point. He, he has taken his royal robe off. Um, we don't know if it's to, uh, a, a, a sign, He's just saying, I don't care about this at this moment. Or if he's just relating to the people and saying, I'm a servant for God too. It doesn't really matter, right? But he's taking this off. And she says, and, and she sees David dancing around, leaping around, dressed like a commoner, and she despises him in her heart. David can't even get inside the door before she goes out to meet him in the front yard for all the neighbors to see. And then she's just mockingly sarcastic, saying, what a scene the king of Israel has made today, dancing around with all the people watching. You should have seen what the service force girls are saying about you, or you should have seen the way they were looking at you. It was positively vulgar. See, she clearly holds her position of royalty high, and she has this outward dignity about her, but mostly she just has pride, just like King Saul did. And here his daughter is. And David responds by reminding her he was not putting on a show for the servant girls. He wasn't putting on a show for her or anyone else. But he was dancing before the Lord. See, David has a priority straight here. God comes first. He's not worried what the people think about at this point. David knew he had pleased God. And if anyone thought he was a fool for praising him, that was their problem. David was not ashamed of his love and thankfulness to God. So here we have David in two difficult situations so far. He's trying to take the heart back, gets a man killed. Now his wife is running out in the front yard. And by the way, God will strike her barren. She will never have a child after this, by the way. Um, and, and, you know, maybe we've all seen that before in the, out in the country. I know we have with the, the guy coming home, maybe overserved a little bit. The woman meets him in the out yard, you know, putting her finger at him. Yeah. So David has had so many issues here. So let's look at the last thing here. David has a desire for the temple. So let's start where it says seven down there. Um, now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest for all the surrounding evenings, the king is David, obviously. David, I mean, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go tell my servant David, thus saith the Lord, Will you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. I've been moving around in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places that I moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word to any of the judges of Israel? whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be the prince of my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies before you, and I will make you a great name 
like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed more. And violent men should afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people in Israel, I will give you rest for your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares that the, the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, you lie down your fathers, I will raise up an offering who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and kingdom will be made sure forever. Your throne will be established forever. And according to all these words, according to the vision, Nathan spoke to David. Rejection number three today for, for David. David had a strong desire to build a permanent place for God, a temple that he wanted the ark to be in, a place of worship. He said, I have this fine house. God doesn't have a house. Now, the desire wasn't wrong, and we talked about this before. The timing was wrong, and the person was wrong, and God's about to tell him why. We couldn't look at all of this, and this is also in another book called Chronicles. But now we've had three rejections from David, but there's also two reminders from God. First of all, God reminds him, I've never asked for a house. It's all about my presence. This is what he said, this is what y'all keep forgetting. It's not about the ark. It's not about a place. It's not about a temple. It's not about a synagogue. It's about my presence that's most important. My people don't need a house to worship me. It's never been about a place or a building for God's people to meet him. It's about a personal relationship of meeting him where his presence is. Also, he reminds David, you don't see it so much here, it kind of alludes to it, but he reminds David of this, you're a man of war. If I'm going to have anybody build my place for it, I'm going to build a temple at a time of peace. You're a royal, or you're, you're, you're a warrior. See, God is a God of peace and harmony and rest, not war or argumentation or confrontation, and he reminded David of that. See, David's, David's going to have a son named Solomon. Solomon's going to be allowed to, do, to build the temple, and, and, and God is not telling him, like, David, you should be ashamed of yourself or you did something wrong. He said the time is not right, and it's on your agenda right now, David. And David, I'm going to bless your people. I'm going to bless your kingdom. Your kingdom's going to last forever. It's going to culminate in Jesus Christ. If we know the answer to that, he doesn't quite see that yet. So here are the lessons that he's reminded David of, but I think we need to all be reminded of today. See, even if your intentions are good, wait on the Lord. We are terrible at waiting. We're terrible about stopping and consulting and waiting for God to bring more of the pieces together when we're at a time of, of, of confusion. If it Don't rush it. If it feels forced or wrong or chaotic, it's not from God. Second, God's ways are not our ways. Today's passage reminds us that the Lord takes things like worship seriously. And we're not allowed to just come in and treat God's worship or anything else with irreverence by ignoring what he has commanded in worship. Uh, there's a sense to where we have, we, we have talked as a worship team a lot about what intentional worship looks like that reveres God but also communicates with us. Worship that is biblically based so that we're not just singing words about repeating the emotions that we have. 
but looking at the words from the Bible and communicating that and bringing the congregation in on that. Because we know, like the Bible says, if we don't, there could be severe consequences to that. And God is not honored if we don't. Let us all seek to be faithful to God, not just in worship, but in our obedience, in our life. Praise Him when we're relating to Him, we're worshiping Him. Let's do it in the ways that the Bible explains. And you can't do that if you don't know the Bible itself. Last is the last point. King David is a great king. He's going to be known as one of the greatest kings and a man, the Bible says, after God's own heart. But he's still imperfect. Kings and leaders and pastors and other people are not the ultimate role model. But Jesus is. Think about this. Jesus was the Son of God, yet he was always looking to respect his Father and show reverence to him and defer to him. He was and is the king of the universe, but he sought to please the Father first. That's a model for us, but also he did it to the point of not only his life, but the point of giving up his life and dying so that we can have the wisdom that he had and the freedom and the peace and the rest and the joy and the love and the faith and the hope that we can have that no other leader in the world can promise us. Think about that day as we come to the communion table. Let's pray. Father God, thank you uh, that you've given us all we need by way of wisdom of what to do in life and by way of your son. May we utilize that. Lord, help us to quit getting ahead of you. Help us to quit, quit forcing things and trying to get your ideas into our agenda. May we submit our agenda to your will. Lord, we pray all the time, your kingdom come, your will be done. Help us to remember that. Help us to abide in that. Help us to rest in that. And help us to thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed today's sermon. We want to remind our listeners that our doors are always open at Chelsea Presbyterian Church, and we invite all our listeners to join us for worship. You can visit us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at Chelsea Middle School. To hear more of our sermons from our church or for more information, you can find us online at www.chelseapres.org or check us out on Facebook.